My guest this month is Nazazi Malanga, known to his many students as Master Z. Z has an academic background in engineering, physics, Eastern and Western medicine, and has been a world-class and champion competitor in martial arts. Z has studied, practiced, and taught Tai Chi, Qigong, and traditional Vedic yoga for more than four decades, and he runs an integrative health institute here in Los Angeles. He's also a father of four and a great storyteller, as you'll hear. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with someone you feel might also enjoy it, and please consider rating it or reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. Here's my conversation with Z. We will remember this night because it is the night we begin brothering for each other. Hey, Matt, what's up? Hey, Z. Thanks for being here. Oh, glad. Honor. It's an honor, man. Can you talk about your relationship to other men historically, whether it be your family of origin, your father, uh, or chosen family, however you want to take it? Yeah, this is a, a powerful topic. Um, uh, even the term brothering, and, and and I like to think about what the word means. I mean, when I came to the United States, we had to understand the etymological root of words, and it, so they would make sense. So you think brother, other, the other you. That's what brother means, the other you. Um, and it's it's very different than any other relationship we have. And something I've found in life is I, I meet a lot of people that don't have brothers, and I'm not talking about biological coming from uh, the cultural background, from Congolese, we don't have a word for stranger. And oftentimes that concept of brother or the other you is more based on common temperament, um, common experience, shared struggles. And it's something that is honored and earned. It's not something that ne you're necessarily entitled to. There are things that you gain from the entitlement of the randomness of, of parenting. Like two people come together, a moment of lust, the waywardness of fate, and you all of a sudden you have brothers and sisters who you share that common parenting with. Or like in some place you find out that I, I, I met one of my brothers at my dad's funeral. And um, when I was 13, my dad was murdered. And I leaned forward on the front row and I looked to my right. And another little boy looked forward and looked to his left. I thought I was looking in a mirror. And I asked my grandmother, who's that? And he said, well, that's your brother. We'll talk wow. about that later. And I got to know him. And we were when we were young teenagers, we hung out. And strange enough, we had very similar temperaments, even though we were raised in completely different environments. Mm -hmm. And just recently, this past weekend, he came to a funeral, uh, excuse me, a wedding uh, of his daughter in the Central Valley. And I had this feeling in me. I say, I really want to not let much time go by before I see him. I said, hey, let's meet in the middle. So we found a vegetarian restaurant in Bakersfield and we met there. We met up and I took my son with me and my son immediately looked at him and said, wow, you look exactly like my dad, except you're fat. That's what he said. 
And um, when we were younger and we met, we actually looked identical, except we had slightly different eyes. So if we wore sunglasses, we would appear to be identical twins. Um, and we have some differences, but our temperaments are very similar. So he ended up going in the after college. He went in the Army. I went in the Air Force. But we always stayed in touch. And I was very confused at when was the last time I saw you? Because we talk on a regular basis. I talked to his son. His son is 37, but I've never met his son. But I've talked to him. And he said, oh, it was at granddad's funeral. That was 1978. So the last time I saw my genetic, one of my genetic brothers was 78. My elder brother, as you know, was, was killed by a drunk driver back in 2000, uh, something, 2003, 2004. But those are, are the brothers we share DNA and we happen to share common temperaments, right? That we, we, we kind of see things and our lives tend to run parallel. But the brothers that I'm talking about are brothers that were a product of circumstances and time conditions, things like that. So when we came to the United States, I had, I found two friends that had happened to move into the neighborhood around the same time I moved in the neighborhood. And as kids, one of my friends had moved from Texas to California. One had moved from Wisconsin to California. And I had moved from the Congo to California. So for, as far as all the neighborhood kids concerned, we were all foreigners from a faraway place, be it the Congo, Texas, or Wisconsin. Uh, those buddies of mine became friends all my life, and they're my friends to this day. There's a different relationship I have with them because we don't have the entitlement of birth. Everything we had, we gained, we earned, we worked on. They know me and I know them in ways that no one on earth, no one on earth can even relate. They can finish my sentences. They're very, very different from me um, in behavior and temperament. But in doing that, we found this unbelievable connection that is indescribable. An example of that is um, one of my friends, one of the fellas, Ant, he was the uh, head of the bomb squad in Vegas. He died a few years ago of cancer. So this is a, this is a friendship. So we go way back as kids. We ran track together. We... Uh, fell in love with girls around the same time, went through heartbreak at the same time. Anthony and I, we went into the Air Force together. Um, and uh, though we were very different, people thought we were physically brothers because of the, the closeness that you could sense. Well, a few years ago, right before my little one was born, um, we we talked on a regular basis. I would go to Vegas on a regular basis. He would come here. Um, he's always had access to my home and everything in my life, just as if it was his. Um, we wouldn't have to pack laundry or, or luggage whenever we traveled because we would share clothing. And um, or I would steal his clothes or he would steal mine. Um, you would talk to him about whatever you were going through, business, love affairs, ups and downs in life. And there was a constancy. And so some time ago, about six years ago when he passed away, I hadn't heard from him in a while, right? We, we talked and I, for some reason I hadn't heard from him in a while. So I was like, what's going on? Is he coming religious? And I'm some kind of heathen, maybe he can't talk to me. You start thinking all kinds of stuff. 
And I called him up and I said, hey, man, what's going on? I haven't heard from you. He said, oh, I just got busy. Everything is fine. It didn't sound like him. He's never been too busy for me. So, Matt, what he says to me is, his wife gets on the phone and says to me, if you don't tell him, I will. And I said, oh, my God, his wife found out about a side piece or something. They're getting divorced. I don't know what's going on. I didn't, I didn't tell, right? And he says, oh, man, um, I'm dealing with this cancer. I said, what? When did you find out you had cancer? And he says, well, it was about four months ago, right, when I was retiring from the bomb school. I said, you've been knowing this four months and you didn't tell me? And I began to curse and yell at him. And I closed up shop here. I was in the middle. I, I canceled all my appointments. And I jumped in the car. I still had my scrubs on. All this I just jumped in the car and just sped to Vegas. I called the wife. She was uh, pregnant with the, the little guy. And I jump in the car and I race to Vegas. And all while I'm driving to Vegas, I'm literally cursing him out. And, 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 tell, and, and why the fuck did you tell me? I do this for a living. I have a wellness business, integrative health. We're going to pull out all stops. We're going to do whatever we can. I need you here or I need to go to you and I need to take a leave of absence and we're going to get deal with this. Tell me what kind of cancer it is. Uh, who's, who you, who's your oncologist? Let's get to work on this. And he's, he's not replying a lot back. He's, yeah, I know I'm wrong. I should have called you. I should have called you. And then I, I just go off on it. I get to his house. And I sit down and I see the shape he's in. The cancer is eating up his skin. It's called mycosis fungoides or mushroom cancer because it's it's just, he, he got exposed to radiation at work. So I get there and I start working on doing acupuncture, doing everything. I take his shoes off. I sit him on my lap. I said, give me some water. Give me this. I'm talking to his wife. And I said, why the hell didn't you tell me? And he said, because I knew you would be doing exactly what you're doing now. I've been keeping up with your life and you're finally happy. You married, I married late in life. I got a baby on the way. I had just have a, I have one younger kid. You know, my kids are between 42 and six. So the two new ones are just babies. And he said, for the first time in your life, I saw you happy and with a family. And I didn't want to make you unhappy. And I knew if I told you, you would stop everything and give up your world for me. And I didn't want you to do that. So I kept it to myself because I didn't want you to stop being happy for me. That's a brother. That's yeah. a brother. And so, of course, I did everything. And, and I would, the baby was coming. And so I would go back and forth to Vegas in between going to all of his cancer treatments. He came to the USC hospital for cancer treatments. I followed him all through that. And at some point we had the family, the family start accepting that it was a serious issue because most of the time families are in denial, especially if it's an iconic uh, man in the family that you, you believe that nothing will ever happen to him, no matter what, he can beat anything, he can do anything. So I became that person between him and the family so that he could express his suffering without hurting their feelings. So we're at the USC Oncology, Oncology Cancer Specialist, and he has all his families there, his two sons, his daughter's wife. And 
he says to the oncologist, what stage am I in? The oncologist said, we're at stage four. And he says, I didn't hear you. What'd you say? And what he was doing was making sure his family heard that he was at stage four. And he wanted me to make sure that they heard he was at stage four. And they were like, what does that mean? What, what, what treatment can we do? Should we? And, and he knew what was up. So as I rode back with the family, I explained to them in my way of it's stage four and we're going to make the best of the time we have with him, which was the hardest conversation I have. Remember, we've been best friends since I was nine years old. Nine years old. I have two friends that are still my friends. He died. Nine years old. I am almost 70 now. As we rode back to his home and then we went our separate ways for a while, I was making sure I was there every weekend. And towards the end, we were sitting down on the floor in his house watching television and talking about life. And he asked me in the strongest, tenderest way, he says, how many times have we done this? So we grew up as kids. I had a broken tele I had two broken televisions. One had picture, one had sound. And we would stack them on top of each other and we would ruminate, talk about life, do whatever, girls, track, what we wanted to do when we grew up, how we wanted to be great dads, um, all the things in life. And I said, I don't know, man, we've done this a million times before. But now we're old men in our 60s doing the same thing, same feeling. And he starts to download his life as people do. If you've ever been with somebody who's terminally ill, they start to download. And he starts to talk about everybody in his life in different orbits, uh, minor players in his life, important people, our track coach, these people who were important to him. He gets down to his family, his wife and his kids. And then he looks at me and says, then there's you and me. And there's you and me. And he tells me, he says, you know why you're my brother? I said, dude, we're just, I mean, we've been with each other a long time, man. We've been walking this world a long time together. We've been through everything together. He says, no, I want to tell you why you're my brother. He says, you remember when we were little and I went, you went to my house and opened the fridge uh, because I was a really crazy kid. I would just barge in your house and try to take over everywhere I went. And he said, you opened my fridge and there was one apple in the refrigerator. And you said, oh, this is some bullshit. Let's go to my house. And we went to my home and my mother was a politician and she would travel. So she always left us with money, a full fridge, full cabinets, things like that. We kind of raised ourselves. And I said, come on in and eat anything you want. Let's cook. And from that day into the day we went in the military or left for the military, he ate at my house every day. Breakfast, we'd make a lunch and we'd have dinner at my house every day uh, for the years, all those years from elementary school through college and into the military before we left. And he said, you know, that day when you came, that's all the food that was in our house was that apple. And that was for my brother. And he said, the day that you became my friend was the first time I went to bed not hungry. And since I've known you, I've never had a night of hunger. My family has ever, never known poverty. I never knew that until he was dying. I never knew that. He said he had been hungry 
all of his life until the day I became his friend. And that is truly my brother. And there are many, many stories, Matt, that we shared like that. And my other buddy, Kevin, who was also in the fire department, we all knew each other. We all grew up together. And we've always been close. There was a time as, as, as children that Kevin ran around and he, he found a man molesting a young girl, a, a teenage boy. An older teenage boy was raping a young girl in the backyard. And Kevin saw him and he yelled at the guy, hey, stop that. And then everybody came out and they called the police and the guy went to jail. And we'll never forget this. And so Kevin was asked back then to testify at this uh, proceeding. He said, yeah. And the guy's name was Tim. I'll never forget Tim. Really interesting guy. He was a black guy with light green eyes. If you've ever seen that before, real interesting looking character and he had a, a, a kind of a sardonic smile on his face all the time but he was a child predator kevin saw him and he went to court and testified against him and they gave him jail time and we were walking down the street many years later three years later four years later so this happened we were in elementary school and the guy stayed in jail until we were in high school because they let these people out after some time. They go right back to the neighborhood. They didn't have the system they have where you warn people there's a predator. They didn't have that established. So we're walking down the street, headed up to, to, to school. And uh, I say, hey, there's Tim. And, and Kevin not thinking, because that's the way he is. He's just a big hearted guy. He's the optimist, right? I'm the pessimist, he's the optimist. He said, hey, I, I maybe learned a lesson. Let's say I'm going to say hi to Tim. Or he waves, hey, Tim, how's it going? Tim walks across the street with a sardonic smile and says, I'm good, and reaches in the pocket and pulls out a knife and lunges to Kevin. Kevin froze. I jumped in front of the knife, and uh, I, I, I beat the guy, and Kevin realized the guy was trying to kill him. And I'm yelling at him, you idiot. This guy, is, he hates you. He's going to kill you. And they took him away, of course. And then he did a longer prison sentence. God. And to this day, I think about that. And Kevin thinks about that. And he said, without hesitation, you were ready to take a knife in the chest for me. Without hesitation. Because you're my brother. Because you're my brother. I would rather not be here than exist in a world without you. Now we're old men now. He's finished with his service with the fire department. He has all the health issues of people who were in fire departments have. And I reflect upon our life together and the hardships that I've had in my own life and how it's affected me. And we sat and had a talk. And I told him, I said, you need to get your health together. And he promised me he would. And he's doing all this treatments, getting his health, losing weight, doing all the right things. And I said to him in the sweetest brotherly way, make this deal with me. I asked him, I said, you leave this world. You leave this world after me because that will be too hard because I love you that much. You let me go before you go. So you fight for your health. You do everything you can to stay well and healthy. So when that time comes, I go through the door first. That's all I want from you. That's brothers, man. And it's important, I think, for us as kind of the old school men and I say that, I have to say that because I'm from another generation, another era, 
I don't know about gender fluidity and that, that, that. I don't, that, that's, I, I'm not knocking anybody. It's just, that's a different world for me. I know brothers, I know sisters, and I'm going to speak for what I know. And what that camaraderie does, it, is, it, it prepares you to be a better father, a better husband, a better friend, a better man. That That is your battle test of the character you have in life are those friendships you hold with your brother. If you can appreciate those, it's made me a better father. They check me on myself. It's made me a more enduring husband. My friends do that to me. Um, they hold the vault of your conscious and your subconscious. They hold the key to that vault. We have a term we use call your DBT. That's your dead body in the trunk, friend. <laughs> <laughs> and there is nothing that you would that they could do that would breach the trust, even if it's at your own risk. That is something that is earned and developed through circumstance and condition. I'm not telling everybody they should have criminal friends. or I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is there somebody that takes you to the edge of honor, to the edges of loyalty, to this idea of duty? That's why a lot of guys, Matt, long for military service. Yep. Because you develop relationships in the military under the adverse circumstances you cannot see in the civilian world. You're not longing to be in a war. You're not longing to watch death and mayhem. You long for that closeness. And it's born of just daily displays of honor and loyalty. You can do it outside the military, um, yet you often see it from military relationships. I was fortunate enough to have young, from a young age, to have established those relationships. They were reinforced in the military, and you call those people your brother. I had an incident in the military where we were we were involved in a firefight, and we were being evac'd, and one of our guys was hurt, uh, Lundquist, whatever, was hurt. And as we're loading up our evac, one of the fellows with me, who was my second, Robertson, he pushed me, he was pushing me to move faster to get this Lundquist in. And there's a lot of little details to it, why a big guy was in the Air Force. The Air Force doesn't allow big people unless they have a waiver. This guy had a waiver. He was bigger than all of us. And we had to, it was a little bit harder to move around. And we we handled it. And um, Robinson took a uh, uh, small arms fire and he survived the incident, but passed away in the hospital. When, when we were handling his remains, they had something called a remains card that you fill out when you're uh, potentially in harm's way. And that remain card is the person who will take your your property or your, your clothing, your personal effects, your love letters, your your porno magazines or whatever, and they'll prepare everything for your family to receive, right? Whoever's on your remains card. I don't know if they still do in the military, we had that. So you have the most trusted person will go through your remains, whatever's left of you, and make sure that what your family gets is what they wanna see. 
You follow what I'm saying? So yeah, they scrub that stuff if need be. Right. So if you have a wife and a girlfriend, uh, you won't have. They won't have to be upset with you dying. If you have some other weird stuff going on, or just things you, you just your personal business. How do you want to appear to your loved ones outside of the combat theater, the theater of outside life? I was on his remains ticket. I got everything ready for his family. And um, he had told me all about his family. He was from somewhere up in the hills of Tennessee, hillbilly. He was a hillbilly when he was three years old or so. His father, in a drunken moment, branded a swastika to his neck. And um, But we served together in a seven-man uh, air crew recovery unit. And um, we were often in harm's way together. He had a strong Tennessee accent, redhead, hillbilly, but he got in the way of my end and it shortened his life. And so when I got his remains and returned them to Tennessee, I had to, at the time I had to drop his, they dropped his casket off at a local uh, mortuary. And then you have to go to the family. They've already informed the family that something has happened at that time. Uh, they did it a certain way. They knew that they would be getting a visit from a military liaison, which pretty much means it's not good. Yeah. And so he had asked me to do that. He said, I don't, my family isn't that kind of family. I need you, somebody that knows me. They're not going to accept a stranger. And I, in this card, he asked, I said, okay. But he had told me that they were hillbillies. I knew where he lived, up a dirt road somewhere and some bumfuck place outside of Tennessee where they were still doing moonshining. And I go to his home. I have my, what they call in the Air Force, your dress mess uniform, kind of if you're going to meet the president, or you're going to meet a dignitary. I put that on. Normally, we wore a battle dress uniform in our unit. But in this particular case, I dressed up. Um, the Air Force at the time gives you $10,000 for the dead, your dead child. They give you um, his last paycheck and whatever uh, vacation pay he had coming and whatever hazard duty bonuses and a little letter and a flag. And so I went and knocked on the door and having served with him for the 18 months that we served together, I knew everything about him. I knew his girlfriends, what kind of car he had. I knew his family. Uh, we would write letters back then, and I would help him write letters really poetic to girls and stuff like that, because he wasn't as as wordy as I was. And we were real tight. We had a few incidents over in Thailand and different places we served that um, people didn't understand how we were an oddball group of people. Yeah. Um, but we were real tight. I knock on the door, and his uncle comes to the door. And says, hey, Bobby, there's a nigga mailman at the door. And his father and mother come to the door. And I was prepared for that because it was a different era. It was hillbillies. You know, I'm some African dude that is in some kind of, uh, you know, anti-white group or whatever. Now we're hanging out together. So it's all cool. And I'm hurting because I lost my friend. I thought he had made it. Strangely enough, we both had AB positive blood. We're universal receivers, but we can only take blood from other AB positive. So I gave him as much blood as I could when he was being triaged. He joked with me funny about it. Told me he was craving vegetarian food and watermelon. He felt something growing in his pants. He made funny jokes while he was being evac. And 
we were doing transfusions. It was just great. And I told him I like Leonard Skinner after changing blood with him. And <laughs> so anyway, his mom and dad come to the door. By the way, Matt, I haven't shared this with a whole lot of people. You know, just you, because I got love for you, man. And um, his mom and dad came to the door and they looked at me. And she just collapsed. And his dad looked at me. And I'm in my 20s at the time. His dad was in his 40s. And he said, are you mama? And I said, yeah, I'm mama. That was my call sign. That was what my crew called me was mama because I was a guy always carrying vitamins, looking after them, getting in trouble to make sure they had what they needed, uh, making sure they sent money home to their kids, uh, cursing out different commanders and stuff because I didn't want my people hurt. So they had called, they, only the guys in my unit called me mama. Wow. And the dad said, are you mama? Because he had been sending the letters home telling his dad about everything that was going on. And I had never heard anybody speak to me like that outside of my unit. And I just, I was a kid, man. I realized when I was a kid that I did everything to keep my emotions in. My stomach was burning and I, because I, I had to present, I had to bring their son's body back. I had to bring my, my brother's body back to his family. And, and we were talking and he said, well, how did little Bobby do? And I said, I'm here because of little Bobby. I'm right here in front of you. He did real good, sir. He did real good. And his mother's, we can't console her. Almost, she faints a few times. So we talk for a while and he brings out a stack of letters and pictures. He says, here's when you and little Bobby were over in, where's that, Cambodia somewhere? Was that Iran? He, he sent pictures. So yeah, that's us. And as I ended my visit and I, fulfilled my military duties and I was leaving. And he says, um, I've never left this hill. Everywhere I've been, I can see with my naked eye. I never got to see the places you and little Bobby saw. I never got to know the people he got to know. And if I ever said something to him or taught him something that hurt your feelings, will you accept my apology? I said, yes, sir. And he said, and I know what happened to your dad. You know, my, my dad was murdered in front of me when I was 13. I shared that with my, with, with my unit. They knew about it. He said, and we, are, we, we got a similar problem. You ain't got a daddy and I ain't got a son. So if you ever need a daddy, just let me know. And I hope that when I need my son, I can call you. I said, yes, sir. And I stayed in touch with that man until he died. As brothers. Born under circumstance, not born of the same womb, but born under circumstances. Those kind of experiences open you up to be more receptive to the opportunity to have these very powerful relationships. And being that way and the lessons that I learned from my best friends as children and my friends in the military is why I'm able to always reach out to you when People in distress. I trust you. I, you are my representative with the sick and dying. Always have been. I'm always here for you. For others. Because I learned a valuable lesson in brothering. I like the word brother. The other you. The, the part that fills in for you. The part that looks after you. The parts that calls you on your shit. The part that can get you on the right track, the part that can get you to bend your knee when you need to and straighten your back when you have to. 
You need a brother for that. You don't need a sister. You don't need a mommy. You need a brother for that. Yeah. You need steel to sharpen steel. You know what I mean, Matt? I do. I feel the same way about you. You occupy a very special and unique place in my heart. And, and that's why we're talking today. And those people gave me the tools and the character to do that. I can see my brothers and others. I have biological brothers, you know, as my elder brother was killed by a drunk driver a few years. And uh, it wasn't just because he was my brother. It was because of who he was as a human being, his understanding of me. And um, that amplified the genetic component. But you can have it without that, as I have with, with Aunt and Kevin. I have with my dear friend, Phil Wong. You know, some years ago, um, I have I have male mentors that that I was fortunate to have when my father was killed. I have my martial arts professor. I had an academic professor. I had a track coach. My martial arts teacher is still with us. My academic professor is the reason I do what I do today. Back in 89, I was visiting the Bay Area where I grew up. And I had been working and traveling the world and working in the entertainment business, as you know as an excursion in my life. And I was visiting and I ran into my academic professor and he comes up to me and he says, I, I saw him at the health food store and he was looking really good. He said, Z, I've taken your advice. I'm a vegetarian now. I'm really looking after my health. I'm eating organic. I'm doing this. But I really need to know that recipe you had for um, veggie barbecue. You had this great recipe. Uh, and there's some things I want to talk about with health. And he was, the guy was looking great, Mr. Navy's. He was looking extraordinary, Richard Navy, just an extraordinary academic professor. So I said, I'd be honored. I went over his house and um, we were sitting there preparing this vegetarian barbecue that I made. And he said, I want to talk about a health issue. You know, I have leukemia. And though it's a cancer, it's a life-threatening disease, though it may not be deadly if I can get a bone marrow transplant. And I had just met a woman when I was on tour who had waited to get her bone marrow transplant so she could lose weight. And she waited and she was fine. She was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, had the bone marrow. She was fine. So that's what I knew about leukemia at that point. But I went on this unbelievable journey with him, finding out that he needed eight matching antigens, not six. The people in his family were unhealthy, so they couldn't give him the bone marrow that he needed. And I went on this down this whole journey of trying to find him a teaspoon of bone marrow. And I was fortunate enough at the time I was working in the music business, as you know, with the, the different groups I had worked with and the different artists. And I was in a good financial place and we opened up a leukemia registry. And I went back and took courses in phlebotomy after having bad experience with the American Leukemia Association. And just to make a long story short in our time, we couldn't find a matching donor. So I was doing all the acupuncture and, and natural medicine and uh, holistic medicine on him I could do and we were able to extend his life a bit but we couldn't find a matching donor and we went to the oncologist again and he said we're across that line even if we find a donor there's no real chance of it helping out because of how far gone he is uh, so it's going to take an intervention a divine intervention so we went home and we just did what we could and it was obvious that he wasn't going to um, live much longer and it was a point where I was massaging his feet. I put his feet on my body and I started 
cursing all the gods, Jesus, Muhammad, Yehovah, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Buddha, you all fucked up. This is one of the nicest men in the world I know. He's 47 years old and he's dying of leukemia. He needed a damn teaspoon of bone marrow. He had given his whole life to teaching kids who people had thrown away, teaching kids that had extreme trauma in their life and helping them go on to great academic success. I was one of his worst students. He woke up as I was doing this chinasa acupuncture technique on him, trying to bring the cancer into my body and trade with him. And he woke up and he said, soldier, what are you doing? He used to call me soldier. He said, soldier, what are you doing? This feels great. I haven't felt this good in days. And I broke down in tears and I said, you can't die. You're like a good guy. I should be dying of cancer. You shouldn't die. And he said, stop right there. And he says to me, I'm okay with this. I've been given everything in my life I want. I wanted to live in a nice house. And that's this house overlooking in the Oakland Hills, overlooking the zoo. I wanted to marry the prettiest woman I've ever met. And that's my wife. I wanted a cool sports car. And that's that beat up 69 Porsche 914 you've been working on since you were in high school. And I wanted to make a difference in the world. And I chose academics. And you were one of the most traumatized kids I ever met. And here we are at the worst moment in my life. I turned to you for your medical knowledge to take care of my baby and to stand in for me in class. You're one of the most intelligent people I know. And you were one of my most difficult students. So the universe has given me everything I wanted. And in exchange for that, my years are shorter. I accept that. And I said, sir, I can't accept that. I'm here and you're there. That's not right. And I have to pay you back. That's what I told him. He said, Z, if you want to pay me back, I'm going to ask you to do three things. And I said, I will do it. He said, I know you will. I know, I know how you are. You will keep your word. He says, I want you to go get me that vegetarian duck from Long Life Veggie. I want to listen to some music. And that's Don, John Coltrane. And lastly, I want you to do for others with an open heart what you've done for me. And I said, okay. Okay, okay. The next day he slept through the day. He suddenly woke up from aspirin breathing. I called the oncologist and said he's having erratic and aspirin breathing. His pupils aren't dilating and um, I'm not able to find a pulse. And he said, he'll be gone in a moment. Um, just let us know what time and we'll fill out the death certificate. No need to call up 911. Anybody's been through that, you know the drill. And suddenly he woke up from the bed and stood up and his robe fell down and he was just skin and bones except his shoulder, the top of his shoulder and his head were the same as always. He's six foot plus guy full of muscle and he looked like a skeleton. And he said, Z, I got to get back to the school. They're fucking with the kids and I got to get back to the school. I said, okay, let's go back to the school. And I began to try to dress him. He fell, he collapsed in my arms and said, oh, he looked up into the heavens and said, why do you want me? I'm just a school teacher. And he took his last breath. We put him away. We went on about our lives. And I was stuck with this promise I had made to him to do for others what I did for him with open heart. And that's how I got into the health and wellness business. That's incredible. A big brother. A mentor. A father archetype. That's why I'm here. All these businesses that you've seen me do that involve health and wellness, integrative medicine, is I made a promise to a dying teacher. I'm an engineer by scholarly claim. I did that first, weapons systems and biomedical. 
I didn't want to be around people. I was the head of security for Warner and Virgin. That's what I did. I didn't want to deal with all these mamsy pamsy health people. I made a promise to a dying teacher. No, I'm a Second Amendment vegetarian, believe it or not. So I'm a, I'm a real confusing character. You know that. Yeah. Yeah, brothering is important. It elevates you. It challenges you to be the best you can be. So those are my thoughts, Matt. I want to dig into a couple of things you said earlier. You you talked about um, how it's made you a better husband, but talk about how how brothering is different from the way you relate to your woman. Well, men and women are very different. Unlike what they say in this day and age, uh, men and women aren't just their uh, parts. Women have different brains than men. And to navigate and have a healthy relationship with a woman, you have to be really rooted in your foundations, man. You don't have to know when to get off the bus. So we can only process one third of what a woman says. That's just nature. I didn't make up the rules. So when you have a brother and you're frustrated or you're going through something, they'll tell you, no, man, sit with it. Here's your approach. Here's the way you manage your house. Here's the way you manage yourself under the challenges of having a very different creature that you're naturally drawn to. The levels of oxytocin and things that a woman produced that makes men crazy. You need somebody that can steer the car while you're drunk on hormones. Your behavior, your ego, when you feel like you want to do something, you need somebody who can look at you in a dispassionate way that you trust, you respect, you honor. And that respect and honor, trust, not, was not born of validation. They tell you when your breath stinks. A brother tells you when you're not doing right. And you will listen to him when you can't hear anything else. You will listen to him through rage, through depression, through anxiety. They'll call you, they'll, 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 they'll bring you off the ledge. And in relationships, you need somebody to bring you off the ledge. Because as you know, relationships can be very challenging. And if you don't have that mentor, not a therapist, not a, a disassociated character reading from a book, but somebody that knows your behavior, who can sit right there with you, and calm you down and say, go back and take care of your kids. Learn how to listen without listening. Maybe she's talking because she doesn't want you to fix things. Maybe she's just talking because she's a woman and you just need to hear her out. A brother can tell you that because when you're going through it, it makes you crazy. Yeah. It makes you crazy. Any man will tell you that. Women will drive you crazy. And if you love her, you would be even crazier. So you need somebody that can steer the car because you're too crazy to drive to get you, keep you on track. Being a father, being a good husband is a, is a thankless endeavor. But you're not supposed to be thanked. That's your duty. And find joy in duty, not in praise, right? You're not looking for praise. You're simply looking for that respect and that honor and devotion. And that doesn't always come with uh, flowers and bells. A brother keeps you in your masculine in a healthy way. So when a man gets in his feminine energy, he's a dangerous man when he lets his emotions guide him through everything he does. Untethered emotion. And we we all gone through that. And somebody has to call you and tell you it's okay. Even in other relationships, I had a I had an issue in business, you know, about a few years ago. And my my teacher didn't necessarily side with me, my martial arts teacher. I was really hurt that he didn't take my side, right? And one of my brothers, Phil Wong, who just called, by the way, Wong, I was all upset. I told Phil, hey, my, my teacher 
um, didn't support me on something. And he slapped me around and said, Z, get it together. He's your teacher. He's not your father. You earn your relationship with your teacher by fulfilling your duties to the teacher. And you, he earns praise. But your teacher is going to teach others. And if they come to him, he's going to give them the same thing he gave you. A father's different. Your father's love comes from a love of entitlement, from his ego. He's going to love you just because you came out of his groin. He's going to love you just because of that. So whether you're a hatchet murderer or a saint, your father's going to have love for you, but teacher won't. Your teacher, you got to always be in the saint. You have to always be extraordinary. He's not going to love you when you fail. It's not an unconditional love. It's not a familiar bond. It's an earned relationship. So don't get upset because your teacher didn't treat you like your father. He treated you like a teacher. So honor him for what he gave you. And it, so my buddy had to tell me that. Mm -hmm. Slap me around a little bit. And I let him slap me around because I respect and love him, not because I'm a punk, but because that's my brother and he would never do anything to me that wasn't in my own best interest. So that's how they help you stay on track, help keep you right. You mentioned being a father as well. Can you talk about how you've practiced fathering that's maybe different than how you were fathered? Oh, my God. You know, I was raised in different times where basically you beat kids and keep them straight. And my, my parents were young and stressed out. My father was murdered in front of me. So I had no sense of the reliability of fatherhood or the kind of the, just the boring constancy that's required in being a father. Uh, you know, we came here to this country from a war. I saw all sorts of mayhem, murder, suffering as a child. There was no therapy. There was no coddling of any kind. There was no uh, safe space, trigger warning. That, I lived in a different world. You know, we played on playgrounds with pipes and concrete. Uh, we, we rode in the back of pickup trucks. Uh, safety belts were invented in my lifetime. Um, we went to horror movies as a family, went to see Chainsaw Massacre together. There was none of the things that go on now, right? In my first set of children, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I wanted them to be my friend. A lot of people say, kids can't be your friend. They don't, they don't have the ability to be your friend. You have to give them uh, guide, guidance and you have to have boundaries. And I was too young at that time to really appreciate that because I wanted to fix my childhood. I wanted to fix my childhood. And my best friends and I, we used to sit around when we were kids and sit outdoors on the stoop or the porch and, and fantasize about what it'd be like when we were father, how every day would be Christmas for our kids and all that other stuff. We'd never go through, they never know pain and hunger when we were fathers. We talk about that. But I realized that the suffering and the things that we went through built character. The challenges we went through built character so we could survive in a world that wasn't always uh, positive and oftentimes hostile. And so as I matured, I could listen and take those lessons and, and use them. My children know my best friends as uncles. They could turn to my best friends, always have been, when they couldn't turn to me because of the nearness and familiarity and maybe the issues with mom and dad, uh, the issues in marriage. Uh, sometimes you're at odds or you're fighting your spouse over the kids or they're being used as billy clubs in the relationship. And you need that uncle that gives them stability because they see the big picture that what my friend wants is for his kids to have a better 
opportunity in this world today to be able to live without them watching over to make good moves to do the right thing when nobody's looking. And when you're going through those ups and downs in relationships, you're not always the best parent, but uncle is. Uncle fills in that vacuum. So when you have that best friend, they know what you want for your kids, even when sometimes you can't see it. And when you're on that roller coaster, at times, most will be, they give them stable ground. They, they, they are your voice when you don't have a voice. They're the clarity in your voice when yours is unclear. And what about the second set? How old were you when Drona was born? Well, when Drona was born, I was already, uh, what, 56 years old, 57. <laughs> so all those lessons, they were much easier. And he has the same uncles as my 42-year-old and my 36-year-old, 37-year-old kid does. And um, they know them as uncle. They feel safe. They remind me all the time. You remember what you went through the first time? Remember what you went through 40 years ago? Here's how you not go through it now. So it's easy. It's much easier this time around. What What do you think are the are the number one things? Nobody owns the truth. And a lot of it has to do with where you're standing. Um, when you, you, you think you know everything, you think you know what's absolutely right, and to have those other set of eyes on it and be able to surrender to that, you know, because with a best friend, you can surrender. And there's no liability to that because you're going to always be protected. Whatever's happening, it's in their best interest. So they, 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 they help you listen better through the noise of your own mind. I think loyalty through adversity, that we will make mistakes, we will fall short, but they would never abandon you. You're not looking for a medal or an award from them because you already got it. Reaching out and admitting that in your strongest self, you may have weaknesses and blind spots. And that's natural and normal. But they will never betray you because of that. So you can have an open heart. One of the strongest things you can be is an open-hearted person because you allow yourself to be vulnerable. As Muhammad Ali had to do the rope dope he had to get beat up for four rounds so he could survive to the fifth round where he would prevail. So you learn to rope a dope evil with righteous bobbing and weaving so good can get even, right? <laughs> As Chuck D would say. And you, 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 you have that person that holds the mirror up to you and they're unwavering with that. So you learn to see your naked ego and how it can torment you and it undermines you even as it makes you prideful. It will lead you to destruction. So you learn to shut up and listen. You go back to relationships and like I said, men and women are, are very different. Sometimes you just got to shut up and what I mean by that is sometimes you may be right, but is, it, but is it harmonious? Would you rather be right than be right? And you make that decision. And sometimes somebody has to call you on that. You don't always have to win to win. Righteousness versus harmony. For many of us, we have to be a fool before we can be wise. 
And what you do as a man is you protect them when they fall. You don't let them fall too hard. You let your kids take the, the, the blows, but they shouldn't end up in the hospital. But they could end up with a few bruises and band-aids. That's good for them. That's how you learn. And so too we. Right? Even us vegetarians have to eat crow sometimes. Amen. <laughs> Just be open-hearted, man, and, and surround yourself with people you can trust enough to be that way. I'm not saying be open-hearted with every uh, miscreant and psychopath that walks down the street, but have your circle of benevolence around you um, that you can just be you. That takes a lot of stress away. It, it, it's very stressful putting on a facade. It's very stressful. And that's for the outside world. Those that come within your world, ideally you can be free share who you are to various degrees based on the closeness to their orbit. If you're the sun, who's your Mercury, right? Who's your Mars? Who's your Earth? Think about that and keep those that are close, close and keep those in the outer orbit. Maintain that outer orbit. Not everybody can you open up yourself to, but have those people that you can because those are the people that are going to check your balance, right? And so that's something. I check in with people now at the age I'm at now and I've lost so many people. As the Buddha said, don't be fooled by the transiency of life. If you love somebody, show them. If you think about somebody, check in. Make it a point to have a meal or break bread with those people because when they're gone, they're gone. Don't be fooled. Don't think you, you, you always got tomorrow. Whatever you do, as Patanjali says in the Yoga Sutras, do it now. Now is the first sutra in the Yoga Sutras. Now, there's a reason. No, this ain't forever. Should I... When had lunch with a brother I hadn't seen since 1978. I, and I was trying to figure out my head. I think I saw him in 2010 or 2015 or something. He said, no, I was a granddad's funeral. That was 78. How the hell did that time go? People born and died since 78. Born, died, had children. So you don't let time get away from you. So let people know I'm here for you. I got love for you. Share. Don't just say it. Act it. That takes a lot of pressure off you. Men die more of stress and stress-related diseases than anything else. Take some stress off of them. You know, when you laugh when you feel like it, cry when you when, when something makes you sad. I cry more than I ever did in my life. Shit, I'll watch some screwed up movie and cry. You know, I'll watch some war movie and cry. Just let it out, this toxin. And then go back and, and then if you feel bad about crying, you know, uh, go spar with somebody and beat somebody up. Then you'll feel better. You know, um, it's real simple, man. But be real. Be real. But be in an environment where it is healthy and safe to do that, where people won't use that tenderness against you. Because people will mistake tenderness for weakness. They'll mistake benevolence and generosity for foolishness. Make it plain. You're the best. Uh like I tell women who tell me I'm the best, I say, no, baby, I want to be the second best so I can aspire for something. Every time a woman tells me she's the best she ever had, I always say, don't tell me that. Tell me I'm the second or third best and I'll work out. I'll work harder. <laughs> You're the second best. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, anytime, Matt. I love it. I, I, I want you to, uh, I want it to be a part of my podcast. I'm trying to grow this media company. 
Uh, I'm on a whole Dharma media thing. It's a thinking project. As I look back on almost 40 years of doing this work, I think the biggest thing I've seen in human suffering is the way we think. We have malthought. You know how they put malware in the computer? We have malthought in our mind. We have a totally screwed up way of looking at the world. And I'm hoping to create a media portal where like-minded people, that, that percentile of people who are truly independent thinkers, can have a resource and a, and a global community of thinkers, as opposed to compliant syncophants, right? That's, that's where the world is headed, right? Compliant, compliant, like the Matrix movie, that's where we're headed. And for those of us who are outliers, I want a place for us to come and meet a portal that we can use this technology and it not use us. And where can people find that? Dharma Media. Go to dharmamedia.com. I'm at the Dharma Health Institute. We have something every, we do a podcast, The Dispassionate Observer. And uh, join us. Join us. I would love to. Yeah, I've listened to uh, a number of episodes. It's great. Uh, Yeah, I definitely recommend people listen to that. You're doing great work. Yeah, and that's just think for yourselves, man. I mean, we're getting inundated with stuff that's just poison to our soul and our mind. And so, Matt, I want—I just want those kinds of people. There is a percentage of the human population that thinks for, thinks for themselves, and but they have no support. And as I say, and I'll finish with this, is that I tell people, everybody been around me know that 80% of all diseases are preventable or curable with minor lifestyle changes, minor change in behavior and thought. But a very small percentage of people are willing to make even a minor change just even to deal with life-threatening diseases. So a lot of this mental illness, a lot of health stuff can be easily resolved by changing the way you think and eating some of your good food. Thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate you, brother. Love you very much. Appreciate you, baby brother. Talk to you soon. Talk soon. Peace. Peace. took his brother in seriously. Oh, sister, 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 sister,